Thank you for tuning in to the Headmasters Podcast. This is John DePoe, Headmaster at Kingdom Preparatory Academy. And this week we have an amazing podcast. Uh, Maybe the best one I think that we've ever had. Uh, I sit down and talk with Professor Jerry Root from uh, Wheaton University. He's retired from there. And he's a C.S. Lewis scholar who shares a number of thoughts about education through uh, the life and scholarship related to C.S. Lewis. This is something you will not want to miss. Before we get to that fascinating interview, I want to go over a handful of dates that are related to the KPA community. So uh, Monday, September 25th will be our first parent preview. This means if you know somebody who would like to learn more about the school, is interested in enrolling a student um, at KPA, uh, you'll want to point them to that. We're going to have a meeting that Monday night where we uh, share a lot about the school, answer some questions, and help uh, families make decisions who want to know if KPA is the right place for them. On Monday, uh, October 9th, we will have our fall parent information meeting. This is our mandatory meeting where parents, or at least a parent from every family needs to attend if you want to register for classes in the spring. So um, don't forget about that meeting that Monday night. We're going to share some information with our families. Uh, We like to get together at least a couple times each year where we uh, get to see one another and fellowship together. So uh, make time for that. On October 14th, that's uh, on a Saturday, we will have our Dodge for DC tournament here um, at the gym um, at KPA. It's a fundraiser for the eighth grade class, and it's a tradition many, many, many years old where we uh, will get to play some dodgeball and have a lot of fun. So uh, keep your eye out for that. Get your teams registered. uh, Call up some friends uh, so that you can all have some fun. And then we have the fall festival shortly after that on October 21st. So uh, lots of KPA traditions coming together here very quickly. All right, without further ado, let's just jump right into this interview with Professor Jerry Root about C.S. Lewis and education. All right, I am sitting down with Dr. Jerry Root. Um, Professor Root, could you... uh, Quickly introduce yourself for our listeners. My name is Jerry Root. I retired two years ago from Wheaton College, where I taught for 25 years. I was a full professor there, and I'm now a professor emeritus. My lifelong academic study for the last 53 years has been C.S. Lewis and topics related to him. And I've been teaching on him at various universities for um, 43 years. I've lectured on him at 81 universities in 19 different countries. So I'm really happy to be here with And so now here he is live with uh, Kingdom Preparatory Academy here in Lubbock, Texas, uh, sharing, getting to share his uh, wisdom about um, C.S. Lewis with us. Um, I've asked Dr. Root to share some of his thoughts about C.S. Lewis and education. So uh, let me hand it over to you and, and let you take it away from there. Well, let's see if we can do something with this for you. Every time Lewis puts his pen to paper, in essence, he is drawing from the wide end of a funnel all his reading and his academic study. He had a degree in classics where he would study Greek and Latin literature. He 
uh, understood greats, the great literature of uh, <clears throat> the Western world. He taught medieval and Renaissance literature. He was familiar with the scholastics. And consequently, every time he put his pen to paper, basically everything he wrote was informed by his understanding of these things. And he, 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 he wrote one book, for example, called English Literature in the 16th Century, Excluding Drama. It's a 700-page book. To write that book, he read every book written in English in the 16th century. Every book translated into English in the original language it was written, Old Italian, French, uh, Latin, and so on, and in translation so he can compare the uh, translations and make judgments that were informed. All of that goes into his pen. And mm -hmm. of course, when he writes about education, which you can find uh, things specifically written about it, like the abolition of man, or snippets here and there in virtually all of his writing, even in even in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Why don't they teach Plato? Mm -hmm. You know these sorts of things. <clears throat> so Lewis was com committed to a liberal arts approach, and I would say a faith integrated liberal arts approach to education. The liberal arts are the liberating arts um, that contribute <clears throat> to human flourishing. And there are, that's opposed to vocational arts that prepare one to make a living, gain a skill, do a job. Both of those are, have their value. But when we think of liberal arts or the humanities, we're thinking usually along learning to think well so we could live well. And the liberal arts um, usually include four divisions. The first division would be the sciences. And the sciences are concerned with that which is measurable and quantifiable. And the sciences are often applied in engineering to make our life better. <clears throat> I live in cold wheat in Illinois. In the winter, I don't have to go out to an outhouse because they've applied the science of hydraulics to my house. And I have actually flush toilets in my house. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. and, and, and consequently, in the sciences, <clears throat> we see some people who think that the sciences take ascendancy over all the other divisions of liberal arts. And it's false. Um, John Polkinghorne, the uh, physicist at, at Cambridge University, said, if you ask the scientist, why is the kettle boiling? The scientist would say, well, heat from the burners agitating the molecules and it burns at 100 degrees centigrade at sea level. He says, that's the answer the scientist would give you based on science. But you could also say the kettle's boiling because I wanted a cup of tea and would you want one too? And by mere scientific investigation, you could never get to the second answer. Mm -hmm but it has significance. It was uh, uh, Mortimer Adler, the philosopher at University of Chicago, who said, in four generations, unfortunately, we've gone from saying that which is measurable is that which is important for science to saying that which is measurable is the only thing that's important. And our humanity dies at that point. Lewis was addressing some of these issues in the abolition of man. Second area is the social sciences. And the social sciences recognize that culture is fluid. It's always changing. Uh, humans are interesting and in that they have some flexibility in their nature, but they have some things that are constant in their nature. And the social sciences, the anthropologists, the sociologists, the psychologists, they're able to talk to us about the fluidity of culture and the constancy of what it means to be human. The next area is the, um, the humanities. We look at philosophy, the realm of ideas, history, the realm of human past, and we look at literature. And these things, interestingly enough, have some features that flare up like Fourth of July fireworks, and they, they die in the ash. But there are some things that generation after generation after generation throughout our history keep percolating to the surface. These are very human things.
And as we study literature and philosophy and history, we begin to understand more of what it means to be human. And I think this is also very, very significant. Um, there are people who say Shakespeare is always contemporary because the issues in Shakespeare from the Elizabethan era are issues that are, are issues today. Almost all the plays start with misunderstanding, like you can find in any marriage or family situation or any classroom situation. In the comedies, everybody gets laughter at their own expense at the end. In the tragedies, the stage is strewn with dead bodies because people take themselves too seriously. But that would be a place where literature could help us. In the next area is the fine arts, music, uh, art, uh, literature, poetry, and so on. And in this area, uh, Mortimer Adler described them as the useless arts. Mm -hmm. He didn't mean they were useless of no value, but he meant they didn't have to be of utilitarian value. Everybody should engage in the arts in some sense if they're a flourishing human being. Uh, Tolkien said that man is made to be creative because we're made in the image of a creator. And consequently, if you play a trombone for your own entertainment or you write poetry or you paint for your own entertainment, we would expect that people who are flourishing as human beings would do some sort of creative work. And, and, and the fine arts are one feature that distinguishes also humans from the animals. The animals build things. Bees build hives. Beavers build dams. Uh, birds build nests. But you'll never find anything like the Georgian period of beaver dam, Gothic <laughs> period of robin's nest. They build these things instinctually, but they don't decorate them because they are not creative like humans are. <laughs> so this is always important. So anyway, C.S. Lewis thought that education is a process that enables us to adjust ourselves to reality. Hmm. make a home for ourselves in the world that we live so we understand it better and we adjust our lives accordingly he wrote in an it's it published it later but it was a lecture he gave at oxford university on the english syllabus to the english students at oxford and he wrote we have fulfilled our whole duty to you if we can help you see some given tract in reality hmm. And, and I think this is important. Uh, we begin to break out of the dungeon of self and see things as they actually are, not as we would have them be. We want to see what's actually written in the book, not project on the book what we want to find there. And we just keep meeting ourselves like a mirror in all the books we read rather than understanding and growing outside of the perimeters of our present understanding so we could have real development intellectual development. Lewis wrote in, in one of his literary critical works, in coming to understand anything, we must reject the facts as they are for us in favor of the facts as they are. If we forget that, then we actually begin to think that maybe the railroad tracks do narrow as they move further away from us because we've lost perspective. We see only thing from our own limited perspective. We want to break out of that limit. And, and once we see what is there, then human flourishing can occur as we make creative applications of what we learn and through through embellishments and so on. And in this regard, I would have to say, especially in this age when people are confused about truth, I could be teaching at a liberal arts college and I'll, I'll ask virtually all the colleges I've taught, and I've taught at several, I'll ask people, what is truth? And I'll find maybe three out of a hundred can give me an answer that's legitimate. Truth is not reality. Truth is what I think about reality when I think accurately about it. This is a pen. 
That's a true statement because there's an objective reality that gives validation to the true statement. This is not a horse. That's a true statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a horse. That's a false statement. It's falsified by what's there. Isn't it, it, isn't what I said it was. And and we can do the same thing, with, not just with material objects that can be empirically perceived. We could do it with objects of thought set apart by definition. And we don't engage in equivocation with those definitions. Once the definition is set and established, we think in an inferentially developing way about that area of thought. And this is now challenged by our, our world. Reality is complex. We want to understand it. We want to break out of the dungeon of ourselves. But today, we have all kinds of things that are violated when it comes to the nature of truth. If I say this is a pen, that's true. The word pen, though, is arbitrary. I could have called it a gazortenblatt. But once I create as a symbol for this a word, and, and symbol means uh, two Greek words, soon with and, and balé, to cast together, basically is what that means. So I take a word, pen, and I cast it together with this material object, and now I can talk about this whether I have one present or not. And now, if I want to have communication and community, it's no longer arbitrary. The word must be a, a constant. And so we've got today in our world, people can say, you can be whatever gender you want. You can use whichever pronouns you want. And consequently, then, words don't mean anything. And also, consequently, we enter into a new uh, Tower of Babel, where everybody's saying their own thing. There's no comprehension, no understanding. No communication and no community, no culture. So truth is really important as a, as a basis, not only for learning, but also for community. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And, and, and that doesn't mean that because I know this as a pen, there's nothing more to be said about it. It has a, a, a length, it has a width, it has a molecular structure. It's made from an oil byproduct. The, the, the ink has a chemical compound. It has a function, how it writes on paper, how it writes on paper smeared with butter, not very well. But nevertheless, I can go deeper and deeper with my understanding of this particular thing. So the fact is, I can know that it's a pen. That's a sure word. I speak it with confidence. The fact that I don't have a last word means I have to hold what I know with humility. Because I can always, with any truth, plumb it more deeply apply it more widely, even to questions I haven't begun to ask, and understand it in some sort of coherent relationship with other truths that I might know. So consequently, uh, the modern threat needs to be addressed, and and we should not be taken uh, sway to the, um, we shouldn't drink the Kool-Aid, we shouldn't be taken sway to to the, um, the false notions that could be a front. And we should be gentle with the people we disagree with, but we should also be firm. So we can have a sure word, not a last word. Uh, we should then approach approach the whole uh, learning world with a sense of wonder. G.K. Chesterton said, the world will never starve for want of wonders, only for want of wonder. Mm-hmm. So any truth I know should lead me to a place of wonder and worship. Lewis was a person of faith and believed God was behind both what we can know and, 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 and the fact that we as knowers, he's behind us too. And he put us in this world with this kind of complexity. There's a great, great line in the last book he wrote before he died. It didn't even come out in print till after he had passed away. It's called Letters to Malcolm Chiefly on Prayer. And I think chapter 17 in that book is one of the best things he ever wrote. 
And he has a, 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 a paragraph. I'm going to recite it for you in just a minute, but I want to give you a word first. And I don't mean to insult anybody's attention who might tune into this podcast, but I, I want to give the word nevertheless, uh, because you may not, you may know it, you may not. I had no clue what this word meant when I first read it in 1978 or 79. And it's the word coruscation, coruscation. A coruscation is a sudden flash of brightness. I can see fireflies coruscating in my back garden on a humid summer evening. Or I can see in dark storm clouds that are moving towards me, lightning flashes coruscating in those clouds. Hmm. Understanding the word, here's what Lewis wrote, making a distinction between gratitude and adoration or worship. And worship in a world where God has created it should be the outcome of all. Uh, faith integrative liberal arts education. He says this, gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. But adoration asks, what must that being be like whose far off and momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. Mm-hmm. Or as Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, every bush is a burning bush and the world is crowded with God. So, so Lewis, in this sense, as I, as I think about what he said, I look at something and I, I can begin to ask the question, since it's in some senses, as Calvin said, God dawns the garment of creation. I see something of God displayed in his creation. And so I can say, as Lewis asks, what must God be like? When I first read that Voyager, the interplanetary probe was speeding past Saturn taking pictures of that most mysterious planet in our solar system, the one with rings. I still have my National Geographic from that time, my Time magazine. I'm fascinated by it. They discovered that the outer ring of Saturn is actually braided. We didn't know it till then. Braided. And I think to myself, wow, what must God be like? There's Lewis's question that he chose to braid the outer ring of Saturn. I have friends who are physicists. I have heard five different explanations as to why those rings are braided. Each one contradicts all the others. (laughs) I have a friend who's a physicist, and he says to me, yeah, Jerry, these are the questions that keep us physicists up late into the night. And I have a firefighter friend who said to me, yeah, Jerry, we don't know if God didn't just braid it for the picture. (laughs) Fun. But I can think to myself, I could ask these kinds of questions. What must God be like that they park ships over depths of the Pacific Ocean greater than the light of the sun could ever reach, miles and miles down. And they dangle cameras in those depths, and they take pictures of fish neon bright. Why? What must God be like that he put color in places where the light of the sun never reaches? Or color in marvelous gems that are in caves that nobody's ever explored, and when they come, they see all this color has been there all along. Now, I grew up in Southern California. I always like to see palm trees silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky or a mountain range silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky. Now I live in the Midwest, a cornfield silhouetted against an auburn. (laughs) There's beauty there. I've learned to willingly distill it out. There's great beauty there, but we could have lived on a darkened planet and gotten word from on high that God was going to give us a sunset. And we could have lined every west coast of every continent and every island on our globe and regaled our progeny writing about that great event in our diaries and journals and so on. But what must God be like that he's made our planet a perpetual kaleidoscope of sunrises and sunsets? 
And familiarity causes us not to attend sometimes, but we should always be attentive to these things so we can plumb the truth deeper and see wider applications of it. I think of uh, one star twinkling in a night sky should be enough to awaken wonder and awe in the mind and thought or heart of every right-thinking, right-feeling individual. But what must God be like that he has glittered the night sky with stars and moons and shooting stars and comets and galaxies? And I wish you could have been with me when I was teaching a bunch of Wheaton students up by their Northwoods campus by Lake Superior when at midnight the students were knocking on my door saying, Jerry, they're out, they're out. We came out and we saw the northern lights Mm. dancing and coruscating and pulsating in the night sky and reds and blues and greens and whites. We did the only thing that seemed just because justice is to render to a thing it's due. We stood on the ski dock and sang praises to God and, and prayed to him and thanked him for the glory of that event. Um, but but Lewis won't let us stop there. He forces us to ask the hard questions too. What must God be like that there are earthquakes in Haiti, tsunamis in Japan, AIDS babies born in Africa, and too many school shootings in America? And Lewis forces us to look at that because God should be able to be found there. And he actually says, if our religion is objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it's precisely in the puzzling or repellent where we discover we do not yet know and need to know. He writes that in a famous sermon he preached called The Weight of Glory. And, and, and the liberal arts education shouldn't be afraid. If it's informed by the love of God and the forgiveness of God, we should lean into the conundrums and keep pursuing what we might know more deeply about these particular things. But also, Lewis makes it clear that this reality that 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 education should seek us to get our minds and our hearts around this reality he says is iconoclastic an iconoclast is a person who breaks an idol so let's say i have an idea of god and i've got a bunch of pieces of the puzzle i'm trying to figure out and if all of a sudden something happens a late night conversation with friend a course i'm taking at the school uh, a sermon i might hear a book i might read some of the pieces of the puzzle come together And my image of God or my understanding of any particular subject becomes more robust than it had been before. If I hold on too tightly to that present image, it will compete against my having a growing image. And the image now once helpful has become an idol. And Lewis says God in his his kindness to us is always kicking out the walls of any temples we build for him because he wants to give us more of himself. This becomes really important, I think. So, The idea is that reality is complex and our thinking about it needs to be dynamic. We shouldn't be stuck in a rut. There should be something breathtaking around every corner. And and, and, um, also, the idea was not new with Lewis. You can, again, see it in the authors he read. Uh, Baron von Hugel, who was an author who influenced him to some degree, uh, wrote in his letters to his niece, beware of the first clarity. Press on to the second clarity. And the third clarity, there's always more. Uh, It was Browning, uh, Robert Browning, who wrote his poem, Rabbi Ben Ezra. Then welcome each rebuff that turns earth's smoothness rough. I can think I have everything figured out, but the earth is complex. It has geography, it has peaks, it has valleys. Welcome the things that help you to see it the way it is rather than the way you have to have it be. One of Lewis's 10 most favorite books was Robert Browning's The Ring in the Book. 
It's a 500-page poem. I read the stuff Lewis read. I read that poem. It was breathtaking. And that whole book is about reality as iconoclastic. Um, Tennyson's In Memoriam, poem he wrote over, uh, I think it was like eight years after his best friend died, who was engaged to his sister. His sister never married. She never got over her grief. But he's working out his grief and writing this poem, and he has a line in there. Our little systems, he's talking now about theological systems, our little systems have their day, they have their day, and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, O Lord, art more than they. Our best theological understandings are so limited because God's way bigger than them. And in, as the great theologian Lucy Pevensey said mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, or in Prince Caspian, her second trip to Narnia, she sees Oslo the Christ figure for the first time on that second trip. She says, Oslan, you're bigger. He says, no, child, I am not. But every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. And so this idea then that reality is complex, it, 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 it's iconoclastic, an idea I have will have to give way to a better idea. Change is always going to be necessary, but then I have to develop the wisdom to say what kind of change is necessary. Is it a change of kind where I chop down the tree and build a, a table, make something completely different out of it? Or is it a change of degree? The tree doesn't have to give up its interior rings as it adds more rings. And a lot of our change in education is change of degrees, but sometimes there's some pruning that has to happen. It's a change of kind. And Lewis's writing is filled with this faith-integrated liberal arts approach to life, human flourishing. But his most poignant expression of these things is found in The Abolition of Man. And I want to bring to your attention one particular thing he said in that book. For the wise man of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. It's not just our mind, but our whole soul, our whole person. The mind is the reason, the feelings are the emotion, the will is the volition. And so it's how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution, Lewis said, had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. Virtue. And I want to look for a second at virtue. If I have moral compromise in my life, I have to come to a mystical moment where I will repent of the bad thing I've done. Or if I don't repent and I persist in the bad behavior, I will begin to have my mind dull. I will begin to rationalize and justify the bad thought or the bad act and so on, and lose the capacity then to engage in serious uh, liberal art thinking, adjusting my soul to reality. Aristotle coined a word for it. He called it acrasia or acrasia. It means to be without command of my moral life because I've rationalized it. C.S. Lewis wrote this in his book on, on Milton's Paradise Lost. Continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind. Bad behavior competes against growing liberal arts and growing understanding. And, 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 and Paul wrote it too. He said in Romans 1, we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. So consequently, when Lewis says we have to, we have to cultivate virtue if we want to cultivate a mind that understands the world where we find ourselves, virtue is very much a part of a liberal arts education. Virtue was seen as an integrated whole made up of courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom. 
Lewis writes about them in, in, in the discarded image, the book that he wrote on the medieval worldview. He also writes about it in, in mere Christianity, has a whole section on the, on the cardinal virtues. So, so these virtues, courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom, let me define them for you. They're all habits. One courageous act doesn't make you a courageous person. One temperate act doesn't make you a temperate person. Refuse a second piece of pie one time, that doesn't make you temperate. So courage. Courage is a habitual ability to resist the... Uh, to, courage is a habitual ability to suffer pain and hardship. It's endurance, fortitude, and staying power. Courage can be seen this way. Courage is the ability to do the right thing, even in the teeth of pain. Temperance is a habitual ability to resist the enticement of immediate pleasure in order to gain the greater, though more remote, good. If courage is the ability to do the right thing in the midst of pain, temperance is the ability to say no to the wrong thing, even in the jaws of pleasure. I can't tell you the number of students I've seen who will sacrifice everything for sexual enjoyment when it's not it's not appropriate for them. And they don't see why, but as they don't see why, their mind closes down. It was uh, George MacDonald, Lewis included this in his book on George MacDonald's anthology on MacDonald. Obedience is the opener of eyes. Again, temperance leads to the ability to see reality as it is, rather than me projecting on it and taking out of things what I want for my own personal gratification or something like that in an inappropriate time and place. Justice is a habit of being law-abiding and concerned for the common good and the general welfare of one's society. Justice secures and protects natural rights. It's fair, and it renders to others their due. Justice is the one feature of virtue that says my moral development and my intellectual development is linked to my responsibility to others. And that's extremely important. An educational process that's well-oriented should move me in that direction. And lastly is wisdom. And wisdom is a habit of being careful about decisions I make. It, it seeks um, counsel and advice. I think that wisdom in some senses uh, recognizes that we're pea brains and we need the advice of others, the advice we get in books, the advice we get from teachers, the advice we get from other people who are friends who see something that we may have missed and left out. Anyway, I think that that's, that's where I would go with this. And I'll, I'll, I'll end what I'm saying right now with one last thought. When I graduated from college, or excuse, yeah, from college, the graduation exercise in college is called commencement. And this man wisely said to me, you don't get an education in college. You lay a foundation for one. And now you're going to commence your education by building on that foundation. And he said to me, pick an author who will take you places and make that author your life study. I think he could have said, pick a composer, pick a period of history, pick an artist, pick a country, pick a subject. I picked Lewis. I, I think I could have done worse. And like I said, I've been studying him now for 53 years, but he opens more than wardrobe doors. I read the books that he refers to. I read the books that those people refer to. And it just has this sort of like uh, the, the roots of a tree going down into deeper and deeper soil, one branching off from another and so on. So anyway, I hope that's helpful.
Yeah, that, that was terrific. And I'm so glad you shared that. Um, for my families listening to this, um, I hope that you, you hear all that language that we use at the school. Um, we didn't just invent all this, that we're, we're tapping into a deeper tradition. And Lewis, it, for many of us, was, is kind of the, the handrail or the, the way that we get into that as evangelical Christians. Um, so I just love, A, that, that you started off by sharing so much about the liberal arts tradition, because we definitely see our school as trying to impart a liberal arts education to our students. And, and then you went on to talk about truth. And how we talk about the importance of truth, beauty, and goodness. And uh, truth is, it's, you know, one of those stubborn things. You can't make it whatever you want it to be. It's, uh, you know, you need to conform to truth, not the other way around. And then ending on the virtues, this has been a, uh, an important uh, emphasis as we started this school year with um, our parents and our staff. We're spending a lot of time talking about virtue because we think what we are doing Education is a means by which we form both intellectual and moral virtue. And um, so glad, by the way, that, that you you took some time to unpack some of that from Lewis as well, the, the those four cardinal virtues, which once again have been a, a focus for us as well. Um, there's another there's another feature though, too. If in our educational process we can come to love not just the process of education, but love the things that the education is opening up to us. Um, for example, I've noticed in Lewis's communication style, he doesn't try to get in a person's face and persuade them through very good rhetoric. No, he tries to get shoulder to shoulder with the person and describe some feature of reality, define it, describe it, and help a person imaginatively even get their minds and hearts mm -hmm. And consequently, if I learn to love the thing, I will stay interested in that thing that I love. And and it, it was it was um, when it comes to virtue too. Pascal in the Pensee wrote that Christians have two laws better than all the laws of statecraft: love God and love your neighbor. If I love God and love my neighbor, I'm going to naturally want to do that which is uh, circumspect and right in relationship to them. If love grows cold, then what happens is penal penal codes thicken. You got to keep telling people by coercion you should be doing the right thing that you should naturally be doing if you love that person. And so penal codes thicken, and law li libraries proliferate, mm -hmm. and, and and lawlessness then is is often in in uh, in vogue. And when lawlessness is in vogue, even the scriptures say love grows cold. Mm -hmm. Keep your love for God going. Keep your love for the world he placed you in growing. Keep your wonder in that world growing. And my guess is people won't have to coerce you. Virtue will come naturally because you'll see that this is something that is most pleasurable. It will lead to the happiest life and and, and the most um, fulfilling life. That's right. I, I think that's why um, sometimes I think educators get this wrong. We think that if we can fix your head that everything else follows that. I actually think if you fix the heart in the right direction, then the head comes in line with the heart. And, and I think that's a good educational principle that uh, Plato, Aristotle, and that tradition that goes all the way up to Lewis includes the idea that education is really an education of affection uh, just as much as an education in thinking. Well, I, I think this is true, but I think a good educator will try to assess what's going on with the student. 
And you may have a student who has a big head, no heart. Mm-hmm. The heart. So you have them read literature that's heartfelt, literature that opens up their heart and their mind. Mm-hmm. I, I remember when I first read Troilus and Cressida by Chaucer. I finished that book and I was weeping at the end of it. I'm a high T on the Myers-Briggs. I live in my head. I'm not supposed to cry. <laughs> and I read Anne of Avonlea. You know, I went to I went to Prince Edward Island. I bought a copy and read it. And I found myself weeping as I read that book. So you can take the person who lives in their head and you can open up their heart. But sometimes you got a person who lives in their mm-hmm. heart. Sometimes it can become self-referential. You need to say, no, it's time for you to probably develop some some good uh, rational capabilities. Lewis was interested in in um, fantasy. He was interested in myth as a child. But then he goes and studies with a guy named W.T. Kirkpatrick, who was a logician, who helped him cultivate good sound reason and sound thinking. Lewis needed both, but he, he learned from his reading issues of the heart, and he learned from his mentor, Kirkpatrick, uh, yeah. the way. We're, we want to be whole people. And, and the will, too. I want to make good decisions as a result. I want to live a morally virtuous life. Well, I'm about out of time. I want to thank you for your for all that you shared. This was terrific. And um, I, I think this is a, a really good reminder for our community. It's a good encouragement for what we're doing here. And I thank you for for sharing all that. Wow. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. I hope you were blessed by it as I was to hear Professor Root and his encouraging and insightful words. Uh, Just want to remind our community that we have our parent preview on Monday, September 25th. That's for prospective families to learn more about coming to Kingdom Preparatory Academy. On Monday, October 9th, we will have our uh, mandatory fall uh, parent informational meeting. Make sure we have at least one parent from every family there. And then on October 14th, we'll do our Dodge for DC fundraiser and the fall festival will be um, October 21st. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, Please come back and we'll have a new episode for you next week.